On October 2nd, 2006, a commercial milk tank driver entered a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, a sleepy hamlet in rural Bart Township of Lancaster County. 32-year-old Charles Carl Roberts IV barricaded himself inside the schoolhouse, taking several young girls hostage. Mercifully unable to carry out his evil plan fully, a short standoff with police ended with Roberts shooting ten girls, then taking his own life. Ranging in age from six to thirteen, three girls died at the scene, two died later, and five were critically injured. Plunged into unfathomable depths of sorrow, the Amish community mystified the outside world by extending forgiveness to Roberts and to his family. In fact, the willingness of the Amish to forgive the man who so horrifically defiled their world became a near obsession with the media. Doing some research on this event and on others like it, one discovers this interest was not unique to this incident. News reports of a number of similar tragedies involving self-professed Christians indicate that the secular media expects the unexpected. They expect forgiveness where bitterness and hatred would seem to flourish so naturally. Now, the media's interest in Christian forgiveness seems at times politically motivated. I think sometimes it's very oversimplified there is a hidden agenda that seems to sneak out at the edges from time to time. It wasn't so difficult to pick up that after the Nickel Mines tragedy, some commentators suggested President Bush should learn from the Amish and withdraw troops from Iraq. Uh, CNN quoted a friend of the Amish who claimed, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive. Well, we know it wasn't quite that simple. As born-again people, we realize how hard it sometimes is to forgive even minor offenses, let alone something so tragic. We also know how terribly complicated forgiving others can prove to be in a broken world. Just how do you go about this? How do you accomplish this? Yet as Jesus' followers, we rejoice to say that forgiveness is, for us, a way of life. And for us, there is no mystery in this. Forgiving others is the only rational response for people God has forgiven an infinite debt of sin. By placing our faith in Jesus' death in our place and victorious resurrection, the infinite punishment due our sin against the holy God was mercifully placed upon Jesus Christ. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been wiped clean, and we stand forgiven sinners before a holy God. What else can we do then but to live a life of forgiveness? Grasping this reality, we forgive others. In fact, Jesus taught us forgiving the sins of others is organic to our relationship with a forgiving God. I'd like us to survey three passages from Jesus' teaching and to notice how essential forgiveness is. Matthew chapter 6 and verses 14 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, 
verses 14 through 15, as we draw from the teaching of Jesus. He says in verse 14 of Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I do not think that Jesus speaks here of earning our way into heaven. We'll say more on that in just a moment. But there's a clear connection between our forgiveness before God and our forgiveness of others. It's unmistakable. In Matthew chapter 18, the passage that was just read for us, Matthew chapter 18, let's just remind ourselves with the end of that parable by Jesus. Matthew 18 and verse 35 As he concludes, he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This man with an immeasurable debt is forgiven by his master, then goes and exacts payment from those who owe him so much less. Jesus speaks here of God's judgment upon such an individual. The God of the universe will judge such a person severely. So it will be with you, says Jesus, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. Mark chapter 11 and verse 25 uses this same stark language concerning forgiveness. Mark 11:25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So standing there in worship, there's something that you have against someone. The idea here is to remove that guilt, at least temporarily here, and we'll talk about that more so that your Father, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Now, Jesus is not saying in these passages that we can earn God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is never earned. It is always mercy. No sinner ever deserves to be forgiven. But if we have truly received forgiveness from God, we will extend forgiveness to undeserving sinners. When genuine believers do not extend forgiveness to others, they remain out of fellowship with God and will not be restored to a right relationship with Him until they repent. Until they repent, He will not forgive their sins. On the one hand, such an aversion to forgiveness may indicate that one has never been truly forgiven by God. But at least, and we might think back on the graphic from last week, if you were with us, we might stand in a place out of fellowship with God and needful of turning back into relational forgiveness. We stand in a place of forgiveness, past, present, and future sins, all forgiven. Yet if we remain unforgiving in our relationship with another believer, God is not going to restore us in forgiveness to a right relationship with Him. There's something between us. There is sin that stands there. So we're not earning our way into Christ, not earning our way into heaven. 
But our relationship with God hinges upon, to some degree, our willingness to forgive others. So forgiving the sins of others is organic to our relationship with a forgiving God. But secondly, we learn that forgiving the sins of others is rooted in the forgiveness of God. And on these two themes, we must hold fast. This is vital. Forgiving the sins of others is rooted in the forgiveness of God and in His work. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, just to remind ourselves, we will be turning to a number of passages encourage you to do so if you're able to do that. And we're trying to aid you here with the graphics to find these passages and remember them. We looked at this last week, but remember and note very carefully how this phrase works out. Be kind to one another, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The book of Colossians, he sounds this very same theme. Colossians chapter 3 And verse 13, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Mark chapter 2, you remember that day when Jesus was in Capernaum? There was this paralytic man who's brought to the house, they can't get in, they take the, the tiles off of the roof and they lower the man down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, seeing this man's faith, your sins are forgiven. You remember how the scribes respond with horror. Who is this man that thinks that he can forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but God alone, they say. How does Jesus respond Oh, come on, scribes, you know better than this. We, we all are to forgive one another. Of course people forgive people. That's not what he says, does he? He tacitly agrees with them that, yes, only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. To forgive sins is the prerogative of God alone. So what Jesus does say is, if I could paraphrase, not to be crass, but watch this, is what he says to them. What's harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this man who is paralyzed, stand up and walk? Jesus says, why do you question these things in your heart? And then to the man says, rise, take your bed and walk. That's what the man does. He's healed. And Jesus says that he performs this miracle. Why? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So that you would know that Jesus Messiah has the prerogative of God. And if there's any question, he speaks And God does not oppose him, but heals this paralytic man who rises and walks home. Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins. But then we ask, if God alone can forgive sins, how is it that God forgives sins? Let's remember this as we looked at it last week, but remembering Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption, how? 
through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And here's where a lot of things get off track. There's much talk about forgiveness of sins with no payment. I just release the person from sin. But God forgives sins because he is just by bringing the penalty of sin down on the head of Christ. There is a death for sin. There is a payment. The only way that a holy, just God can forgive sin is that the sacrificial death of Jesus pays the price for that sin. Does God's forgiveness then apply equally to everyone? We know that God sent His Son into the world as God to bear the penalty of sin, to die a human death, taking our place, we ask then, well then, does everyone receive this forgiveness? We know what the Bible teaches, not at all. Divine forgiveness requires the sinner's repentance. Remember last week the message of Jesus? He came preaching what? He came preaching in his ministry a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Remember the message in Acts 2 of the early church, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So with this provision of forgiveness, it is always contingent upon repentance. Forgiving the sins of others is organic to our relationship with a forgiving God. Forgiving the sins of others is rooted in the forgiveness of God. We must hold on to these two concepts as we now walk into the world of forgiving others. Only God can forgive sins, ultimately. So when He says to us, forgive others, it must be grounded and rooted in His forgiveness, in the provision of Christ to pay the penalty of sin. So now, as we move to application further, let us consider thirdly, forgiving the sins of others is conditioned upon their repentance of sin and trust in the gospel. That's a general statement, which I think has to be worked out with some texts that may seem to indicate otherwise. We'll work to those texts and we'll want to deal with them honestly. But I think generally speaking, forgiving the sins of others is conditioned upon their repentance of sin and trust in the gospel. Consider, first of all, unbelievers, those who have not received the forgiveness of God in Christ. Does God forgive the sins of such people? The Bible is clear that He does not. Now, we could say, yes, He does, if they repent. And if they trust Christ's payment for their sin, they are forgiven. But if they do not repent, does God simply say, well, you're forgiven? Payment's been made. No, he does not. What is very clear, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, for instance, is Jesus will return, and I quote, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Those who do not obey the gospel, those who do not see that Christ is God's substitute to die in our place and rises from the dead, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the text says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Said another way, they will not be forgiven. They will not be forgiven because they come into eternity with their own works. Here's how I've been a good religious person. Whatever faith that is, Christianity included. I come into the presence of God saying, I have earned the right to be in the presence of God. I have done these things. But they don't understand they stand before an absolutely holy God whose standard is not give it a good try, do a lot of good works in comparison to others. His standard is absolute, complete moral perfection. The only way we can stand before such a holy God is if payment has been made for our sin, and we cannot make that payment. Christ stands in our place, but those who reject that message... 2 Thessalonians makes very clear, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Why? Because they will stand in their sin before this holy God. So what does Peter preach in Acts 2? What is that message? Repent. Turn from your sin. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. This is called the gospel. This is good news. It does not rest in me and what I do. It rests in Christ and what He has done. But remember, Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Save yourselves from this crooked generation which exists under the judgment of God because of sin. You must turn. Forgiveness, says one Theologian is the legal act of God whereby he removes the charges that were held against the sinner. That's where the phrase usually ends. In most theologies, though I haven't read most theologies, but a lot that I've seen, it kind of ends there. It's the remission of sin. It's remitting forgiveness. But I think it's interesting what he says here. He says he removes the charges that were held against the sinner because proper satisfaction or atonement for those sins has been made. That is crucial. That is not what the secular media is fishing for when they want people to say they've forgiven others. What I think is actually going on is they want a message of forgiveness without repentance. They like hearing that because they're in no hurry to repent. To hear a message of forgiveness without repentance gives hope to an unrepentant person, a false hope. Repent, says Peter, for the forgiveness of sins. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. If God, then we ask this question, if God has not extended forgiveness to an unbeliever, should we? December 1997, 15-year-old Michael Carneal fired a semi-automatic pistol into a prayer group at Heath High School in West Paducah, Kentucky, killing several students. Michael's pastor insisted he was a Christian. 
because he had been confirmed in a Christian church. Others said in the school they believed he was an atheist. Perhaps the truth lies somewhere between. But what in any event was not seen was any evidence of genuine repentance on Michael's part. Yet, immediately after the shooting, there was a sign hung out on the school. We forgive you, Mike. Now, there's something very right about that spirit. And there were some godly people that were involved in this and some Christian students that held no bitterness. And that is right. As horrifying as it is, there's something very beautiful about that sign. But I wonder, did anybody ask? Certainly the voices even of conservative evangelical pastors in that area. No one was asking, has God forgiven Mike? We forgive you. Has God forgiven him? If God has not forgiven him because he has not repented of his sin, perhaps we should not either. Maybe forgiveness is not really what we're up to here. Granting forgiveness without the sinner's repentance is often a way to avoid the person, to put the problem in our rearview mirror, and just to move on. But you know that not granting forgiveness at such times places the matter in God's hands. If we can do so without bitterness, without anger, without a vengeful spirit, and you know what then happens? It allows forgiveness to come someday. And for us to actually be reconciled to this individual because there's been repentance. You've probably heard of this. What a horrifying thing to hear. Somebody has harmed someone else and after many years comes to them and says, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And the person says, oh, I forgave you a long time ago. What is that saying? I've put you in my rearview mirror and I don't really want to deal with this right now. But think about if this person does not have bitterness, is not anger, is not vengeful, is not judgmental, but it stands there for years with open arms saying, come and I will forgive. And this unbeliever then comes or this individual comes. Then forgiveness can be extended and can be real and the two can be reconciled. Objections will begin to rise here. Undoubtedly, someone might say, well, Luke 23 and verse 34, Jesus prayed for his persecutors, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'll admit there may be a lot of things going on here we don't quite understand, but Jesus, let's, let's be careful, is asking God to remove the penalty of their sin. He is not pronouncing them forgiven. He doesn't from the cross say, I forgive all of you for crucifying me. He says, Father, forgive them. I do not think that he is petitioning God to forgive their sins apart from his death on the cross to pay the penalty of this most horrific sin that history has ever witnessed. Jesus is not praying that the Father would forgive his persecutors apart from the payment of of the penalty of their sin. In other words, I think Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, is, could be stated as a prayer, Father, lead them to repentance. And perhaps at least one soldier came there, and perhaps others did. So on one level, 
For unbelievers, we really never ultimately can extend forgiveness because they do not stand forgiven before God. That doesn't mean we need to be bitter when they harm us. We're not to be vengeful or angry. But I'm also not going to extend forgiveness until they've been genuinely forgiven by God. But what then about believers, secondly? First of all, I think we see two ideas here. The first is to confront sin and forgive those who repent. This is the base start. And we'll go to other passages in a moment. But we first confront sin and forgive those who repent. Let's go to Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, in a list of instructions as to how Jesus' people are to live Jesus says, we'll just pick out of this this one concept of forgiveness. Verse 3, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If there is repentance, there must always be forgiveness. Now, when it says rebuke him, if your brother sins, rebuke him, that does not mean withdraw from him, obviously, but it doesn't mean attack him. It certainly doesn't mean privately forgive him in your heart and move on. How can we read that into rebuke him? We're to rebuke him. That is, we're to take the matter to him, not in order to stir up controversy, but to labor for reconciliation with this brother or sister in Christ. If he repents, forgive him, links up beautifully with Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now what does Matthew 18 teach? What does Jesus teach there? What happens if this individual does not repent? Well, I've forgiven him, we just move on, and I don't worry about that anymore. That's not what it says. If he does not repent, you bring others in. To put on pressure to bring repentance. And if he doesn't repent, you take it to the church, in which then this person is seen as having been handed over to Satan, that is, put under the care of Satan in the world, and treated as an unforgiven sinner. Clearly, the church is not to extend unconditional forgiveness to one who is unrepentant. This is forgiving as God forgives. Remember 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Forgiveness is contingent on repentance. Now what about this word forgive? What exactly is that about? When I forgive someone, so I take here in this situation, I take a matter to someone who has sinned against me, I seek to reconcile with them such that they confess that they were wrong, they ask forgiveness, and then I say, I forgive. What am I saying? Forgiveness is a promise to release them from the liability of their sin and to never use that sin for harm. I don't want to do that. That's too hard. They don't deserve it. Yeah, exactly. Nor do you. Sin never renders us deserving of forgiveness. But this is the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And it is the only way 
that true forgiveness can be granted because Jesus paid the penalty of the sin. Forgiveness now can justly be granted. I really have more time for those religions that really don't talk much about forgiveness than those who talk all the time about it but have no payment for sin. We can genuinely forgive because a believer in Christ because God has paid the penalty through the sacrifice of His Son. Now, this doesn't mean when we say, I forgive you, I, I can say, I release you from the guilt of your sin. It is a promise that I'm not going to bring this up again in a way that harms you. We move past it. It does not mean that I'll necessarily forget the sin. I may not be capable of doing that. It does not mean you cannot bring it up again at all, because I might be able to do so in a constructive way. If someone's entrenched in a pattern of sin, we might be able to put the last four or five offenses together and find some sort of a pattern and help them. But you give your word not to hold the other person guilty of this sin again and not to permit that sin to wrongly affect your relationship. It means you take the sin and you hand the weight of it to God. You let Him carry it from now on and you move forward. The key then in this is to pursue reconciliation with the offending party. See, here's where people jump up and down about forgiveness when they at least see the idea because if it's seen as this is a way I can be healed inwardly and move on, I like that because I don't want to deal with this anger and this bitterness and this frustration. If I can find a way to just forgive unilaterally, then I don't have to deal with the person anymore and I can move forward. But really what forgiveness is all about is reconciliation with the offending party. Again, this locks in to what Jesus teaches us. Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. As we come to worship before God, what is paramount is that we have a right relationship with others. The emphasis is not on chiding the sinner then as we rebuke them, but on remaining reconciled with them. I go after this sinner because I want to be reconciled. I want to forgive, to grant the promise that this sin is gone between us. It's no longer there to mess up our relationship. Well, I hope some questions are oozing out here and you're saying, wait a minute, what about this and what about this and what about this? What if I confront someone concerning their sin and I obey Christ here and I go to them and say, here's the sin that's between us, it needs to be dealt with, and they don't repent. Now what? We'll talk about that next week. It takes a, it takes a whole week. It just, it just does. You get a piece of it here, so don't, don't be too concerned. But does this mean, secondly, we must confront every sin committed against us? If I am to grant forgiveness on the basis of Christ's forgiveness, and I am to do so when others sin against me and repent, does that mean I've got to go every time someone sins against me and confront them? Secondly, we confront sin and forgive those who repent. We secondly overlook sins in love. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you'll turn your eyes to that, turn to that page. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 17 says it this way, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Back to Mark 11.25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Now there it seems to be this blanket, unilateral offer of forgiveness in my heart, not going to the person to confront them. But as we look at Mark 11.25, we cannot just disregard everything else that the Bible teaches about forgiveness. We need to make them mesh, bring them to proper understanding. Knowing that forgiveness is conditioned on repentance, it would seem in Mark 11.25 that Jesus refers to what we might call positional forgiveness. This is a matter that I deal with in my own heart, in my own mind. I stand in a place of forgiveness. I don't think he's speaking here of complete, full forgiveness, but rather a positional forgiveness, or as we would call it here in these other passages, of covering over sin. As far as it lies in us, we can turn the matter over to God and relinquish concern over it. I may then, after I've forgiven someone in this way, go and seek to forgive them as I relate to them and perhaps even confront them with sin. But as I stand to worship God, I release this person's sin against me, giving it to God so that I can have a pure heart in worship. Now that leads to this question. How do I know then when it's right to unilaterally forgive or to cover over sin? To not press every issue, to just let it go and let God handle it and be at peace with it, as opposed to times when I need to confront the sin. Four tests that I think will help us along this line. Here's when I do not need to confront. First of all, the personal test. After my emotions have calmed down, it may take a little while. Uh, I've, I've got to let some things settle a little bit. But once the emotions have calmed down, I say, you know what? I am not bitter about this offense. I'm not dealing with recurring waves of sorrow or resentment. I do not dwell on it. It's not a source of anger or fear or moral temptation of any sort. I'm confident this matter is not and will not become a root of bitterness in my heart. It does not hinder my ability to love this person. Perhaps the best place this is seen is between two loving mates, a husband and a wife, who walk in fellowship and love one another. There's a lot of times we bump into each other and we say things that hurt and we do things that are harmful, but it doesn't affect anything. We go to bed at peace. There's nothing going on in my heart. There's no bitterness that's there and we move forward. We still love that person just the same way. So I ask the question about my own heart. Is there bitterness lodged there because of this offense? Second test, say, no, there's nothing there in my, I can, I can move on with it. But relationally, I don't need to confront if this sin against me is not causing a relational barrier between me and this person. The fact that this sin happened has not continued to alter the way we relate to one another, and I have no concern that it's going to do so. I can genuinely rejoice in evidences of God's grace in this person's life. As I look at them, I just rejoice. In fact, a lot of times that person doesn't even know we've been offended. But I say, this is not going to change our relationship. I'm not going to hold it against this person. It's not between us in our relationship hurting us. 
it doesn't need to be confronted. I forgive. I overlook. I cover over whatever term we might use. I positionally forgive, even if it's, if it's more severe and forgiveness must come someday. More on that in a moment. But the third test, the moral test, I don't need to confront if this sin against me is not an entrenched pattern that is corrupting my offender's walk with God. I have confidence that this person is walking with God, routinely confessing sin, and that God has been faithful and just to forgive this individual's sins. I know it's not between them and God. They just stepped on my toes or they did something that was insensitive or or that was was wrong in this situation, but I, I know they're right with God. There's all kinds of sins in all of our lives that every single one of them confessed before every single person. We really wouldn't do much else, would we? No, this is not causing moral decline in this person's life. It's not an entrenched pattern that's harming them. If it is, out of love for them, I need to go to them and deal with it. Again, more on that later. But the fourth test is maybe not the best name here, but the witness test. That is, this sin is not denigrating the honor of Christ to a degree and or in a manner that confronting the sin could correct. It's not harming the reputation of Christ. This is just life. Now, it's interesting. You can be very, very deeply harmed by someone and not need to confront them. If you know that there's no source of bitterness in your heart and there's nothing in their life that's dragging them down and the honor of Christ is not being denigrated, we can actually suffer quite a bit and not need to confront. On the other hand, there are times when something very, very small can get in here and can mess up our soul, causing bitterness and anger and frustration. And we need to humble ourselves and to go to that person and say, this is what's happened and I'm really struggling with it. I would like to forgive you. And we call upon them to repent. So there's a wide range here of what needs to be left alone and what needs to be uh, dealt with. And sometimes the things that need to be dealt with are actually a bit smaller than the things that can be let go. Is the honor of Christ being harmed? Is this person in entrenched sin? Is our relationship struggling because of this sin? Even if it's a small thing with another person who's fairly small themselves. I may just need to deal with that. Am I at peace with God in my heart, or is this troubling my soul? You see, in all of this, then again, the issue isn't simply forgiveness as some sort of goal in and of itself, but the issue is reconciliation. To be at peace with and right in my relationship with another Believer who has been forgiven by God of all sins, past, present, and future, and stands in that state of forgiveness. Now, relationally, we have a matter between us that needs to be dealt with. If one of these tests fails, I need to love reconciliation, and I need to love my brother or sister in Christ such that I do the hard work of addressing this issue between us. Someone once said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. 
the poison we drink hoping others will die. If that is the case, forgiveness is a healing balm in a war-torn world. It is the way of life for the followers of Christ, a way of life that mystifies the world, but by God's grace draws unbelievers to the wondrous light of the gospel. Where is it in this world that people see genuine forgiveness? Not forgiveness that simply says, oh, it's okay. We'll just overlook this wrong. But forgiveness that really deals with repentance. Where do people see that? Well, they need to see it so that it can lead them to the work that Jesus Christ has done. Jesus Christ has come into this world and he has addressed sin. He did not come into the world and simply in a blanket way say, you're all forgiven. He came into this world and he paid the penalty of our sin, dying in our place, and then calls all to repentance. Turn from your sin. Jesus is not going to take anybody's arm and twist it behind their back and say, you have to go to heaven. You have to be forgiven. He offers forgiveness. We must repent turning from our sin and realizing that only the death of Christ can pay the penalty of sin. Is this world alienated from Christ seeing in you that reconciling light? Do they see it in me? Do they see it at work in the relationships that we have with workmates and neighbors and family members and church members? Do they say, as they should, that is a different group of people? I don't understand what they see in each other. I don't understand how they get along like that, but there's something really unusual going on there. You know, all of this media attention to Christian forgiveness, it's really oriented toward a forgiveness that simply says you can be forgiven without repentance. But what grace there would be in unbelievers looking into the life of our assembly and saying, it's not that way. But there's people there who are willing to say, I was wrong. And others willing to meet them no matter how hard they've been hurt to say, I forgive you. And then, amazingly, they keep loving each other and living with each other. And their relationship actually grows through the problem that they faced. May we learn to live that way among one another as Jesus taught us. Slow to take offense, patient when wrong, bearing with one another, and actively seeking repentance where sin requires reconciliation. Have you received and entered into that reconciliation with Christ? He stands with open arms towards sinners in a position of forgiveness which He will grant if you will turn from your sin and trust what Christ has done to pay the penalty of your sin. Come today that your sins might be forgiven and you might enter into a body of believers who practice forgiving one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that once a blind and selfish sinner, undeserving of Your grace, we were captured by 
your cross. Captured by love in action as we came to see the horror of our sin and the wonder of your grace. Draw to that light anyone separated from Christ today and those of us who have come to know him. I pray by your mercies that you will lead us to be people of genuine forgiveness. Draw us in to this light, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.